like to have you turn now to the 18th chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 18. I hope uh, by this time you're beginning to see something of the unique quality of these, these prophetic books and the purpose for which they were uh, written and uh, for which the message was originally spoken. The, uh, the purpose is not so we can draw uh, grandiose uh, charts of the future and uh, impress people with our knowledge of coming events. Uh, the, the primary message of the prophets was to their contemporaries, so there's a predictive element in all of, of prophetic scripture. The purpose for the writing of these books was to speak to the people who lived in the lifetime of these prophets and to us about living a holy lifestyle. The, uh, the message of the prophets is to return to God and uh, fellowship with him, walk with him, draw from him the strength that we need to be a, a godly people. As we've seen over and over again in our studies in the prophets, God's intention for Israel was, was that they be a holy people, a nation of priests, representing God to man and man to God, and uh, calling, making proclamation in the name of the Lord, calling people into a relationship with God. Israel became a nation so they could be a light to the, to the rest of the nations. And they could only be that source of light if they were a holy people, a God-like people. And uh, so the, the primary message of the prophets was to that end. Return. Return to God so you can be what God has, has destined you uh, to be. Now, in chapter 18, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah uh, again. Jeremiah at first preached on the streets, and then uh, he began to preach uh, out, right outside the temple, in the gates of the temple. So when people came uh, to the temple on the Sabbath to hear from the priest, to hear a sermon from the priest, they got a sermon from Jeremiah before they, they even came into the temple. It would be like coming uh, to Cole Church on Sunday morning and finding some young man standing out in the, in the lobby or out in the uh, portico and and preaching, and as he as as you come in the door, uh, he's uh, he's responding to what I have to say up here on on Sunday morning, and people would say, "Well, who is that?" And uh, he said, "Well, that's that's crazy old Jeremiah. He's out there every Sunday morning, and everything that Roper says, he he counteracts it, and that's precisely what uh, what Jeremiah was doing." The uh, priests of that, of that era were saying, peace and safety. Everything is, is fine. You don't need to worry about God destroying this temple. This is where God dwells. And though they were living vile lifestyles outside, when they came into church, they uh, were very pious, and they were, at least uh, on the surface, were, were very religious people, but uh, they were corrupt. And Jeremiah was saying, if you think God's going to spare the temple because... Uh, of your external religion, you better think again. Go up to Shiloh and kick the ashes up there and see what God did to the sanctuary before when God's people were unfaithful. He'll do it again. He'll destroy this temple. And this is what kept Jeremiah in, in hot water constantly. He spoke against the establishment, against established religion. And in chapter 19, he's given another message. He's told to go down to the potter's house and is go down from the temple area from the top of Mount Zion to the valley that lay just off to the uh, to the west of the temple the Ty uh, Tyropean Valley 
where the artisans lived and worked. And uh, he was to go to the potter's house there. And God says, I shall announce my words to you. So I went down to the potter's house. And there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making was spoiled as the manner of clay is in the hand of the potter. So he remade it, he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Uh, the uh, art of making pottery hasn't changed substantially over the years. If you've watched someone uh, throwing pots today or making pots, they, the practice is, is very similar. In those days, they had a, uh, usually a large stone wheel attached to another stone wheel by a, a sort of axle. This thing was set up on a vertical axis, and they kicked the bottom wheel with their feet, with their bare uh, feet, and kept the wheel going, and, and they shaped the vase with their hands. Now, uh, today, you can go to a craft shop or uh, some other supply store, and you can buy clay that has uh, the same, you know, it's, it's easy to work, and there are no impurities in it, and it's the same consistency throughout. But in those days, they had to go down to the river, and they'd find a spot where there was clay and mud, and they'd, they'd stomp up and down on it with their feet, and then they'd gather up the clay and put it in a basket, and, and they, that's what they would work. And often it was uh, part sand, or it would have impurities of some sort in it, dirt or rocks. And as they shaped the vessel, they would uh, run into a, a soft area, and, and the vessel would be spoiled. And so they'd have to uh, lump it together again and start all over. And that's what Jeremiah saw. The... Uh, if you read the translation that we have in most of our Bibles, such as the New American Standard, you get the impression that um, the the potter is simply capricious. He, he starts out to make a pot, and then he says, no, that, that's not the kind of pot I want to make. I'm going to make another pot. And so he refashions it in some other shape. But that's not the point at all. The The emphasis is not on the caprice of the potter, but on the character of the clay. Uh, literally, it should be translated, he, he begins to make it with his hands and it's spoiled as the manner of clay is. The problem was with the clay. And the potter's not able to make the kind of pot that he wants to make. And so he has to make something else. So the emphasis here is not upon the sovereignty of, the God, uh, the sovereignty of God, who is the potter, but upon something wrong with Israel who's represented by the clay. Now, um, he explains the principle in verses 5 and following. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as the potter does? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So Israel represents the clay, and God represents the potter. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, and I will think better of the good with which I had promised uh, to bless it. Now, first, the Lord shows Jeremiah the parable, or the metaphor, the uh, potter working with clay, and then he draws the principle. And the principle is this. 
And God may determine to judge a nation because of its evil. Now, as we've seen before, these are not always immediate acts of justice and judgment. Uh, God's uh, mills grind uh, surely, but they do grind slowly, and it takes time for the results of the sins of a nation to become manifest and to be judged. And furthermore, those acts of judgment are not always direct acts of judgment by God. More often they're not. They're simply the consequences of, of the natural actions of individuals within that nation. We reap what we sow. And this is what was happening in Israel. They were making alliances with the Assyrians and the Egyptians, and they were playing one off against the other. And uh, what finally happened is that the, uh, the Babylonians got enough of this, uh, of this uh, fraud and deceit and duplicity, and they came and, and, and conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's that sort of thing that, that God sees. He had predicted judgment on the nation, because of their evil, and it was coming, certainly, in, in time. But if Israel rel- repented, if they turned from their sin, then God would relent. Now, it's not that God changes his mind. It's that God is merciful. Judgment is his strange work. He doesn't want to judge. And uh, if we repent, if a nation repents, then God will relent. He will alleviate the judgment. He will avert it, and he'll bless that that nation. Now, that's the principle. And the emphasis that that, uh, Jeremiah is making is not upon God's sovereignty, but upon the conditionality of his promises. Some promises are absolute. Some of his threats are absolute. But some are conditioned. They're conditioned by the response that we make to judgment. And if we repent, if we change our mind about the direction that we're going and we go back and, uh, and walk with God, then he will relent and avert the judgment. That's the principle. Now, that's a principle that's found all the way through the Old Testament. And perhaps the, the, uh, the book that, that best explains that, that notion is the book of Jonah. You, you know the story. Uh, Jonah was uh, a prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel, and he was called to prophesy against Assyria. Now, the Assyrians were a, a very cruel, uh, corrupt people. And uh, they were Israel's enemy at this time, back in the 8th century uh, B.C. And uh, uh, Jonah was called to, to, uh, uh, to announce judgment to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria at that, at that period in history. And as you know, instead of going, going east to Nineveh, Jonah went west. He went down to uh, Joppa, and he caught a ship. Uh, took passage on a ship going west, and he tried to uh, escape from the responsibility of announcing judgment to the uh, to the Assyrians. And you know the story how he was caught uh, by the by the sailors who were accompanying him. He was tossed into the sea, and then delivered back to dry uh, land by the the fish that swallowed him. And he went into uh, the city of Nineveh and he began to announce judgment. And uh, his announcement was this, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the king of, of Nineveh, whom we know from history, was probably Sargon II, said, oh my goodness, we've got to do something about this. And he pronounced, uh, uh, he repented and uh, announced a fast. And the people uh, put on sackcloth and ashes and they put sackcloth on their animals 
And all of them, men, men, women, children, repented of their sin. And God says in, in precisely the same words that you find here in Jeremiah, I will relent. I won't punish Assyria. I'll avert the judgment. And you know what happened? Uh, Jonah went up on the side of the mountain to wait for God to destroy the city of, of Nineveh. And he waited. And the 40 days went by and nothing happened. And Jonah said, I, I, I knew it. I knew that's what you'd do. That makes me so mad. I, I just knew you'd spare it. That's just the kind of person you are. You're kind and compassionate and merciful. It just makes me so mad that you would do that. And uh, Jonah began to uh, suffer from the heat, so God caused a gourd to grow, a castor bean of some sort, grew rapidly and covered him. And, and a worm came along and ate, ate Jonah's gourd. And he was exposed again to the sun, and, and he sat there and pouted. He was mad because God had taken away his gourd. And God says, Jonah, don't you realize that uh, there are 120,000 children in that city? And you're concerned about a gourd? You see, God is merciful. He loves little children, and he wanted to spare the little children of, of Nineveh. Jonah's heart was in, in, in the gourds, and God's heart, heart was in the children. And, and that book is designed to teach us the same principle you see here in Jeremiah, the principle of conditionality. That God may determine to judge a people, but if they repent, if they change their mind about the direction that they're going, even people like the Assyrians, who were the cruelest people of history, then God will relent. He'll lift the, his hand of, of judgment and spare them. Now, that's true of nations, and it's also true of individuals. Now, I want you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 21. This is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21.1. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's close to my house, and I'll give you a better vineyard in its place, or if you like, I'll give, give you the price of it in money. Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Against the law, he says. It's a paternal inheritance. I have no right to sell it or trade it. So Ahab went into his house and he pouted. Couldn't have his vegetable garden. Now, you have to remember who Ahab was. He was the king of the northern kingdom. Most powerful man of that time. Ahab went into his house, sullen and vexed, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and, and ate no food. Full of self-pity. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, What, what is it? Why is your spirit sullen that you're not eating food? Jezebel was a Phoenician lady. She was uh, 
born in the royal family of, of the uh, uh, Phoenicians and had uh, become Ahab's wife and brought with her all of the uh, decadent, uh, idolatrous practices of the Phoenicians. And uh, Ahab says to her in verse 6, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and he tells her the story. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Do you want that vineyard or don't you? Are you a man or a mouse? Squeak up! Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I'll get the vineyard for you. Jezebel was a woman of determination and means. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and with his complicity. He, he, was, he was cooperating. Sent letters to the elders, to the nobles who were living with Naboth. She wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him, saying, You curse God and the king, and take him out and stone him to death. So she, uh, she suborns a couple of, uh, of witnesses, gathers uh, two worthless men, two, two of her goons, to witness against this good man. The elders of this particular city were were afraid of uh, Jezebel. And so they did what she said. They, they proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat before him and testified against him and said, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Ahab was responsible. Ahab murdered this man for a vegetable garden. And then they sent word to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And she announced the word to Ahab, and he went to claim his vineyard, and everything was okay, except uh, Elijah shows up in verse 17, and Elijah was a very short-tempered, very unsympathetic man. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. And say this to him, verse 19, You've murdered and taken possession. In the place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, the dogs shall lick up your blood, even yours. And Ahab said to Elijah, You, you found me. And Ahab answered, I have found you, because you've sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you, and will utterly sweep you away, and will cut off from Ahab every male bond and free in Israel, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocations with which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel sin, and, just, and, and of Jezebel also, as the Lord spoke, and saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel in the district of, of Jezreel. And in verse 25, Surely, this is the commentary of, of the writer of Kings, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. And we say, what a dastardly thing to do. He certainly deserves judgment. He has no right to, to live. The king in Israel was supposed to be a, a, an example of righteousness and godly character. He was considered a source of light to the nation and this man this man turned his back on God he violated the law for, for a selfish whim and, and Elijah pronounces judgment final and ultimate judgment on him but in verse 27 
We read, it came about that when Ahab heard these words, that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring evil in his days, but I will bring evil upon his house in his son's days. He's not saying that the consequences of Ahab's sin fell upon his sons. His sons were themselves guilty of disobedience. And they lived the way Ahab had lived, and, and they were judged for their actions. But, but Ahab was not judged, and, and Scripture is full of this sort of thing. You find it in the story of Manasseh in, in Second Chronicles, uh, on whom the blame for the ultimate destruction of the southern kingdom falls, because he brought in the Asherah and, and the Baals and caused Israel to worship idols. And it's because of Manasseh that the southern kingdom eventually fell into, into judgment. And yet when he repented, he, he was brought back and restored. Apparently you can't get too far from the grace of God. You can't out-sin God's, God's grace. He, God doesn't want to judge. He must because he's the, he's the moral governor of the universe. And uh, just like a human judge who must maintain law and order and justice, God must maintain order. He can't let us off merely because he's merciful. He must judge. But uh, no matter how much deserving of judgment we are, if, if we repent and we come back to God, he, he hears us, and he listens, and he responds, and he restores, he relents. Apparently, then, repentance is, uh, is, is the action that opens the door to God's mercy. Without that repentance, God cannot be merciful. He, he can't just be soft. He, he has to act in judgment. But what averts judgment is repentance. It's when we change our mind about the direction we're going. And we return to God and begin to walk with him. Then he relents. And the problem is, is returning. That, that's hard to do. Because our ego gets in the way, our self-esteem. It's hard for us to look at ourselves and say, I, I sin. We, we always want, we want to blame somebody else. Some, somehow place the responsibility on, on, on something else or someone else. Our circumstances, for example. We say, you, you, you don't understand why I have to cut corners on my business. Why I can't turn out a top quality product or... Or why I must lie to uh, people that I serve. You know, that's the way things are done in the world. You can't take Christian morality and apply it to the ethics of the business world. It doesn't work. And uh, if I am dishonest in my dealings, it's God understands. I mean, that's just the way the world is today. And if I cheat on my wife, you don't understand what it's like to live with my wife. Yak, 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 all day. And... Uh, very little love, very little affection. I don't, I don't get uh, the security and affection and love that I need at home, so I have to find it somewhere else. Or uh, my husband is not uh, fulfilling my needs. Or we blame it on our heritage, our heredity. Uh, we're cold. And insensitive and unloving because we're, we're British in our background. 
or we're hot-blooded and, and temperamental and, and high-tempered because we're Latin, or we're stubborn because we're Dutch, or whatever, and we, we, we want the responsibility to land on something else or someone else other than us. But, you know, if you stop and think for a moment, that doesn't even hold true in, in, the, in the world of human judgment and justice. None of us could stand before a judge and uh, plead uh, innocent to murder because uh, of our fallen nature. And that, that wouldn't work. Stand before a judge and say, I, I can't help the way I am. I'm a fallen man. I have a criminal nature. I have a murderous spirit. That doesn't work. We, we have to accept the responsibility. Now, if we turn back to Jeremiah again, to chapter 18, you see something of, of Israel's response. Verse 11. Chapter 18, So now then speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. O turn back, each of you, from your evil way and reform your ways and and your deeds. Uh, When he says reform your ways and deeds, he's not merely repeating himself. He's talking about our inclinations, the tilt, the bias of our life, as well as our deeds. Not only the the desires of our heart, but but the actions which follow those desires. He says we need to repent of all of them, those inner inclinations, as well as the actual uh, deeds. But they say it's hopeless. For we're going to follow our own plans, and and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of, of his evil heart. I don't think they actually said this, but they lived this way. And in essence, their, their lifestyle was a proclamation of their intent to, to go on their own way. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the nations, whoever heard the like of this, the virgin of Israel, the one who should have been faithful to her husband, Uh, like a chaste virgin, has done a most appalling thing. Does the snow of Lebanon forsake the rock of of the open country? Does snow ever vanish from the top of, of of the mountains of Lebanon? Or is the cold flowing water from a foreign land ever snatched away? There are a number of perennial uh, springs in in, uh, Judah, one of which was the spring Gihon under the city of Jerusalem that that always flowed. It It never dried up. What he's saying is that there's something very unnatural about a nation that turns its back on, on a God like the God of Israel. For my people have for, forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods. And they have stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths, to walk in bypaths, not on a highway, to make their land a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and, and shake his head. They'll walk by the the uh, portions of the kingdom of Judah that had been so rich and, and fertile, and they will they'll whistle, they'll say, what, uh, what happened to this place? It's, it's left a desolation. It's, it's nothing but a waste. Like an east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of 
of their calamity. We, we, you know, we think we get away with our resistance to God's will. But, but we never do. After, after a time, we use up the capital of, of God's grace that's given to us, and there's nothing left. And life becomes a wasteland for us. We, in the inner man or inner woman, we're just as desolate and empty as Israel became as, as a land. Uh, I have a good friend who some years ago turned his back on the Lord, left his, left his wife, married another young lady, for all practical purposes uh, rejected Christ. And uh, he uh, told me for, for several years how free he felt and how, how well things went. And how comfortable he felt in his in his rebellion, and all I could say is that's 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 simply the grace of God. I have a candy jar in my in my office. Uh, it's the best candy I, I I ever ate in my life. Carolyn gave it to me for Christmas, and uh, I, I noticed last week that I had eaten about two thirds of the candy in that jar. And it occurred to me that I've got to cut down. Uh, and so I made the decision to eat one piece of candy every day from now on. But uh, it doesn't make any difference whether I cut down or not. Sooner or later, I'm going to run out of candy. And uh, in, in a way, that's, that's what the Lord tells us. Sooner or later, we, we run through the grace of God. We use it up. And then we're left with ourselves. And there's nothing there. And we feel empty and, and wasted and wanting and, uh, and hurting. And what Jeremiah wants us to know and what all of Scripture wants us to know is that God is, is waiting. He's the waiting Father. What's happened is that we've alienated ourselves from God. And without the life of God in us, there's really nothing living for to live for. He's the one who makes life what it is. As Paul puts it in, in, in the New Testament, we are seated with heavenly places, in heavenly places, with Christ Jesus. Heaven is, uh, life is heavenly because, because the Lord is there. And as a matter of fact, when we get to heaven, what makes heaven heaven is the fact that our Lord is there. And that's what makes life heavenly here, because of his presence. But uh, conversely, hell is the absence of God. And whether it's here or in hell itself, we make life hell when we, when we turn our back on God and we decide to go it alone. That's what Israel had done. And that's what we're inclined to do. And, and the only way to, to find relief is to repent. It's what Paul calls a godly sorrow for sin. Not sweep it under the rug. Don't justify it. Don't defend it. Don't protect it. Don't blame anybody else. We have to accept responsibility for it. As John White says, we have to stand in front of the, the mirror and, and mentally undress ourselves, take off all of the uh, protective devices that we use to, to keep from seeing ourselves as we really are and say, Roper, you are a wretched sinner. And then God can begin to do something about it. Uh, when I first came to Cole, I uh, recounted a sin that I had committed and, and uh, told people how I had dealt with the sin. And 
afterwards, a, a lady who's, who's no longer here, she's moved out of the state, came up and she said, I, I was very disappointed that you shared that story because preachers aren't supposed to sin. And I said, well, uh, actually, that's, the, <laughs> that's a major problem to, uh, to think that way about anyone. Because uh, all I am is just a man who has an assignment to teach the scriptures. And while I have a, a desire to be godly, I, I sin like everyone else. And, and uh, it does us no good to try to portray others as better than they are or think of ourselves as better than we are because we are all dreadful, wretched, ungodly people and we might as well face it. Then we can receive the grace of God. It's when we're defending ourselves and protecting ourselves that we cut ourselves off from the grace of God. Carolyn and I were reading, uh, she's been teaching Hebrews to the leaders and they've been teaching it to the women and we were reading through the last part of Hebrews the day before yesterday and came across the passage where uh, the writer of Hebrews says, marriage is uh, honorable. The word that he uses is actually the word for the marriage ceremony. His, his point is that uh, the ceremony itself is highly significant and needs to be taken seriously. When we say, I do, we mean, uh, we will, no matter what. We'll stick with that relationship. But he goes on to say, let uh, the marriage bed be uh, held with honor. And uh, know this, that fornicators and adulterers will be judged. That puts it very simply. Now, he doesn't mean that someone who inadvertently slips into some form of sexual sin is immediately judged. We begin to feel the judgment of, of guilt and the sense of alienation, but anyone who confesses that sin is restored to fellowship and can go on. What Hebrews is talking about is someone who defends their sin, who is adulterous and defends it, or who is a fornicator and defends it. And as the writer of Hebrews puts it, our God is a consuming fire. Now, we'd like to overlook that fact, but it's true. We don't really get away with anything. Sooner or later, uh, the consequences of our actions catch up to us, and God wants to spare us. He, he says to us, as he said in Jeremiah's time, repent, come back, return, and I'll relent. And you can begin to walk in fellowship with me. You'll be restored. Your sense of joy and fulfillment and satisfaction in life will, will return. That's the only way. Let's pray. Would you take just a moment to uh, let, let God look at the secrets of your own heart? the areas of disobedience and rebellion that you've been protecting. Perhaps it's something you consider very small and insignificant, an unforgiving spirit, or uh, a covetous heart, an unsatisfied uh, longing for something more than you have rather than being content with what God has given. 
or perhaps resentment and bitterness toward someone in, in your past who treated you unfairly and someone you've blamed all these years for your misfortune. Or perhaps it is some ongoing sexual uh, misconduct either in your mind or, or in, in, in fact that needs to be judged and put away or some relationship that's not that you know is not wholesome or some practice in your business or your personal life that's deceitful and underhanded what God wants for us as his people is is godliness he wants us to be a holy people and if we've missed the mark he he wants us to return and receive again his grace, his forgiveness, and go on in obedience to him. Will you do that? Father, we don't like to hear these words of, about your judgment, but we know they're true. And we know that ultimately they have a cleansing and purging effect upon us. We, we know that we that we need someone to tell us what it means to be a man or a woman. And we need, we need your strength to fulfill those requirements. And we need a God who is forgiving and understanding when we fail. We know, Father, what, what you expect is not perfection, but, but rather a, a desire to walk with you, a hunger for fellowship with you. And as our Lord told us, that's that you're seeking such to worship you. We, uh, we thank you that you're that kind of father. And we come back, Lord, not expecting rejection or scorn because we know that's not your nature, but rather love and forgiveness and strength to go on. We thank you in, in Jesus' name. Amen.